Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. My name is Jonathan Holmes, and I am the pastor of community here at LifePoint. And yes, I have been here for a year, though it does not feel like it. In another way, it feels like 10. But I am so excited to be with you all this morning on Christmas week to make much of the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Before we do that, I want to turn your attention to Christmas Eve service. We have two opportunities for you to uh, celebrate uh, Christmas with us on Christmas Eve. Uh, We'll have a 4 o'clock and a 5.30 service. We will have uh, both options on Christmas Eve, and so if you'd like to come in here uh, or if you'd like to go to the uh, mandated mask section, when you are more than welcome uh, to join us for Christmas Eve. But again, 4 to 5.30, we invite you just to join the fellowship in singing uh, of Jesus Christ and hearing from the Word. And then also this coming Sunday, so next Sunday, we will have two services uh, same, same deal, same opportunities to worship in both, uh, both ways, uh, but uh, December 27th we'll have an 8 o'clock and a 9.30 service, and so we invite you to uh, join us on December 27th, and we'll have Kid Life Littles only, and so just make note of that as you prepare to join us uh, in the coming week, but uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, flip it open or turn it on to Isaiah 9. And we're going to read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. Last week, Pastor Brandon opened up uh, the book of Isaiah as well. And so as we spend a couple weeks, I might talk a little bit about the context of where Isaiah is uh, prophesying. And so it's important for us to remember where uh, Brandon took us last week. But Isaiah 7, and Brandon taught us this. Brandon preached on the promise of Emmanuel and how that promise leads us to abandon all strategies of self-salvation for dependency on the God who saves completely. That's good news, right? Isaiah 7, 14, Emmanuel, that was speaking of the birth of Christ. This morning, we're going to really focus on the person of Christ. So who is Emmanuel and why does it matter? So I invite you to turn your eyes to Isaiah 9. And I'll start in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word for us this morning. As we open up Isaiah 9, I trust that we will see this, the gloom of darkness is broken in a glorious light by the power of God through the Son of God. So let me say that again. The gloom of darkness is broken in a glorious light by the power of God through the Son of God. And that's going to be our outline this morning. So in verses 1 through 2, we're going to see how the gloom of darkness is shattered with the appearance of a great light, glorious light. And then we'll see that this only comes by the power, by the very hand of God alone. And then we'll see that in verses 3 through 5. And then verses 6 through 7, we will see that this could only come through the Son of God. The very Son of God. So first, let's go to verses 1 through 2. And we're going to look at the gloom of darkness is broken in a glorious light. We need to be reminded of the context of this passage this morning. Because Isaiah bore the weight of declaring the truth of God to a divided nation, Israel and Judah. And so the Judah was being destroyed before his very eyes under the leadership of King Ahaz. Now that name means very little to most of us in this room, so let me add a little bit of depth to that. So if we take it back a few generations... Ahaz's grandfather Uzziah reigned for 52 years. Now, if you know anything about the kings of Israel, that's a fairly long reign, right? King Uzziah reigned for 52 years, and his reign was marked by, with prosperity. I mean, he fortified the cities. He brought new commerce in, and it was just a sheer definition of prosperity, except for spiritual prosperity. And so we see this, 2 Chronicles 26.5. As long as he, speaking of Uzziah, sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But it's almost like foreshadowing at this point, right? We know, we expect. We don't expect it in our lives. Prosperity never brings darkness, but we always see it in the lives of the kings, right? Second Chronicles 26 and 10 verses later, 15. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, right? We don't see that in our own lives, right? But we see it over and over again. That this was the beginning of some dark times from Ju- for Judah. And often, prosperity brings about darkness. Because in prosperity, we get comfortable. We think, man, our circumstances are good. And we are satisfied with happiness, instead of joy, so we seek pursuing it. We think, I have the things that I need. Why am I looking for someone else to provide something I don't feel the need for? This is exactly what was happening all the way, way back in Judah. This started some spiritual erosion in the hearts of the people of God. And Jotham comes after Uzziah for King, uh, for King, uh, King Jotham came, and he reigned for 16 years. And even though he followed the Lord, The people of God sought out evil. And then we see King Ahaz. And this is who Isaiah is prophesying 
And he's introduced to us as a 20-something-year-old who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So Ahaz stands out from the kings in that he made no effort to follow the Lord. He saw it that he would pursue evil and not the Lord. And so remember last week, Pastor Brandon mentioned that in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz is given a gift where Isaiah goes to him and says, you can request a sign from the Lord. Support, showing that he's behind you. And what does Ahaz do? No, I'm okay. False religiosity. and nah, No, I don't want it. And he goes to the king of Assyria and becomes an ally with him, thinking that will be the way out, right? Now this just, this gets worse and worse. In chapter 8, it describes the darkness that comes over the land of Judah. As Assyria comes in and attacks the people of Israel. And it goes so deep that Ahaz, instead of turning to the Lord, he turns to pagan practices and he burns his sons as an offering to false gods. In 2 Chronicles 28. And here's a description of the darkness. These are the two verses that come immediately before chapter 9. So look to Isaiah 8 and verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. See, hangry is a real thing, right? If you need scriptural evidence, right? It's something we feel, but now we have God's word on it. This is, this is important, so listen. And will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. They'll turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness, friends. They looked up against God, set their hearts and minds against him. They looked to their fellow man, and all they saw, as far as the eye could see, is what? The gloom of anguish. Many of us gathered here this morning know what this gloom feels like. We've experienced the thick darkness of the soul where you don't feel like there's any way out. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're not in that season now, but maybe you are. Maybe suffering has stirred so deeply in your heart that bitterness has taken root, that all you see is darkness, thinking there's no way out. You know one of the scariest things about that place a place of darkness, is that you don't know how deep it goes. There's a mystery. Who wants to run a race with no finish line? No one. So you become paralyzed, thinking that there is no hope. You feel stuck as some days bring more hope and others bring greater darkness. Friend, there is hope in Jesus this Christmas week. The true light. And look at how our passage opens. The contrast couldn't be more clear. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Remember the gloom of anguish? There will be no gloom. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations... The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
See, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Isaiah continues this theme of light and dark in our first few verses by announcing, on them has light shined. The geographical terms there in verse 1 were especially, those were the places that were especially devastated in northern Israel as they were the first to feel the armies come in and destroy their lands. So armies would come in, Zebulun and Naphtali, and they would destroy it. And they would take those people captive as those maybe in Jerusalem were sitting nice still. They didn't feel the weight of destruction like these locations did. Here's how 2 Kings 15 29 describes these times. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel, Beth, Maacah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. So, that was the former time of captivity. This is thick darkness. This is the gloom of anguish. But the former time, when the northern parts of Israel felt this destruction, there would be a new time, a latter time. Glory would come to the very same place. We know that this is a prophecy of light being replaced by darkness, as it refers to and is fulfilled in Matthew 4. In verse 12, Speaking of Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Catch the territory. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes those two verses in Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that place that darkness once reigned, it could only be described as thick darkness, where the gloom of anguish was felt, was the first to feel and hear and see the glorious light of Jesus Christ. To hear the marvelous preaching of Jesus, saying that there's hope in this place, What a glorious promise revealed to the people of Israel and to us today. See, in our deepest darkness, we feel completely disoriented. That moves us to being paralyzed. We must have a light break in. I was speaking at a camp for students one summer. This was a few years ago. And it was in St. Louis. And one of the afternoons, you could go to this cave. And so we went to this cave I don't remember what the name of the cave was, but it was the largest cave I've ever been in. And we had a tour guide, and she was taking us back and back. And I felt like the darkness was getting thicker. They had these little path lights, right, that were kind of illuminating the way. And we got to a point where she turned around, she faced the whole group going through it. And, you know, she has that smirk on her face, and you're like, ah, something's going to happen, right? Like, you're going to do something here. And she's like, I'm going to turn the lights out. And you're going to experience darkness like you never had before. Before you could even think, and everything just goes black. I mean, it was, it was like I was blind. I mean, you could do anything. I, I could see nothing. And it was completely disorienting. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave like that or experienced something similar where it was so dark where you just go like this. 
And you freeze. You're like, I'm not going to move. I don't know what's in front of my face because you're like, magically, there's going to be a cliff and I'm not going to step off the cliff, right? You're like, I, you, you stop, you freeze because it's so disorienting to take a step forward. You couldn't pay me. I was sitting there. I'm like, I'm not moving. And that's what we feel like in the deepest darkness of our souls. We feel paralyzed where sin has taken such a root. I guess we got to keep covering up. Where shame is so overwhelming, we just sit and say, I guess this is part of my life. We just sit in that darkness because we don't see a way forward. But friends, this is the darkness that Jesus was born into. He doesn't let you sit in that darkness alone. But the story of Christmas is that he condescended down, stepping into our darkness, reaching in, And revealing himself as the true light who gives light to everyone. John 1, 9. Just like you couldn't pay me to take a step forward in that cave. There's no way. I had no idea what was in front of me. Right? If you would have lit a little light, I would have taken a step. Right? But not in that moment. But we, by our own power, would never take a step toward God. We would never do it. The only path of salvation is that he came down. There is no path up the mountain to God. It's God came off the mountain to us, takes us by the hand, and walks with us. And this only happens, what? By the power of God. This is the second thing we see in verses 3 through 5. This only comes by the power of God. You have multiplied the nation. This is verse 3. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So what will God do here? What are the use? Well, he will multiply the nation and he will increase their joy. This goes all the way back to Genesis 17, 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, as God says to Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. A multitude. See, the, the, the current fulfillment of that is in the tribes of Israel, but the future fulfillment of that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. As Galatians says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. See, the people of God are a multitude of nations, and this increased joy brings, this increase brings joy, just like the day of harvest where a feast is had, or when you get to divide the spoils of victory in war. That same joy. But what will we do? See, I used to hate group projects in school. I was the achiever kid, right? I, I, got, the, I got the assignment and I thought, let's do it, right? And then I saw everybody else just kind of ride my coattail. So I'm like, that's not fair. That's actually not reality, right? Like I, I clearly saw I did everything, they did nothing. That was not the case always, right? But I still felt that way. I was carrying my weight. Why aren't they carrying theirs? But sometimes we view salvation like that. Like we got to carry our own weight. No, The weight is placed on Christ. What's our role? God does everything. What do we do? We rejoice. We rejoice. Where do we rejoice? We rejoice 
before you. That's really important. Because our joy can be found nowhere else but before Christ. In his presence, our joy is made complete. It is made full. It cannot be robbed from us. And it does not increase nor decrease based on the waves of our circumstances. So what could possibly cause this perfect and joy before God? Look at what it says. Our enemies are wrecked before our eyes. Okay, that's not what it says, but here's what it says. The burden of their yoke upon us has been removed. The staff and rod of the oppressor has been broken. Our enemies are destroyed completely. See, there's nothing that sparks joy quite like seeing Satan defeated. We feel the pain of death, the sting of it but it is defeated on the cross of Christ. If you need a little spark to your joy this morning, remember that whatever is weighing you down, whatever feels like a burden to you, that is destroyed on the cross. That's the foretaste, and it will be fully felt upon his return. Now, there's two important phrases that illustrate the defeat of our enemies by the power of God. So how much are they defeated? I got to ask that, right? Like, so are they going to come back and kind of nip at me? Or, or are they just gone, right? They're compl- completely destroyed. The first is in verse 4. He says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What does that mean, right? Let me remind you of a quick story. In Judges 7, we see Gideon, the judge, he leads his people against the Midianites. So the Midianites are, are, have been camped to invade Israel, the northern part of Israel, right? And so Gideon goes. He says, we will defend. He brings this, this army of men. And as he's sitting there, the Lord says something extremely surprising to him. So the Lord comes to him in the evening and he says this. The people with you are too, too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. What? He's like, what? Like, I have all of these men, we're getting ready to wage battle, and you're, you're saying there's too many of us? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. The Lord knows the hearts of humanity well, doesn't he? This should remind you of a verse, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, given. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So God instructs Gideon to whittle down his army, and you probably know this story, and only 300 men remain. So you kind of feel that tension, right? Uh, I don't know how this is going to work out. God has to intercede at this point, which is how we feel a lot of times in darkness. So Gideon's army goes at nights, they blow their trumpets, and they shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and the Midianites run for their lives. So it will be with our sin, our despair, our doubts, when the shout of the Lord, the light of the true light comes in. This defeat is only by his hand. But it is a total defeat. Look at Isaiah 9.5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
This is talking about the war to end all wars. Now, I've never been in war before, but all I can compare it to is the last time I played the video game Madden. So I was in Norman, where I was before we moved to uh, Ozark, and I was trying to recruit leaders to the student ministry. Now, that can be kind of a hard sell, right? Come and spend time with teenagers, right? Unless you're like me, I'm like, I love teenagers. This is, they, they'll change on a dime. It's great. They understand what it, what it takes to follow Jesus. And so I'm talking to this guy, and we're, we're connecting. I'm like, I need to, I need to figure out if this, this would be a good youth leader for me. And so he mentions, man, I love playing Madden. And I was like, great. I was like, this is a great opportunity for me to play video games and make it work, right? Like, this is just time that I'm working. And so I'm like, all right, come on over to the house. And we're going to play some Madden, and I'm going to get to know you more. And so we're talking. We start up the first game, and it is very clear that he has played a lot of Madden, and I have not, right? And as the, his score goes up and my yards go down, I go, man, this is not good, right? And out of sympathy, he goes, you want to stop? And I was like, yes, please. Like, that was the last time I played Madden. Like, I'm never going to play it. That was a game to end all games. My destruction was encouraging to him. He's like, yes, this is good, right? I need to play more. I'm like, I need to play less. I'm done, right? This destruction is infinitely more. It's so destroyed that the warmth from the fire is our benefit. That yes, we have the spoils, but their destruction just encourages the light to go on. The power of God was so overwhelming to the forces of darkness that their defeat only fueled the fire of redemption. So our final section this morning is entitled, Through the Son of God, and I have admittedly saved the best for last. Through the Son of God. Look at verse 6. For to us, a child is born. That should shock us, right? We're like, oh, it's the Christmas story. Don't let that get ordinary for you. You hear of the power of God, the destruction of our enemies, light breaking into darkness, and the first words, a child is born. What? To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So Isaiah 9-6 declares the humanity of the Messiah. To us a child is born. And the deity of the Messiah. To us a son is given. God dwelling with us, given to us. So it would be one thing if Jesus was born, the Messiah, Emmanuel. It's an entirely different thing that he is given to us. Then Isaiah gives Christ four names, not to merely describe him, but to reveal how Christ is sufficient for every need in our daily lives. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Son of God is our Wonderful Counselor. He has no need or want for any counsel outside of himself, including my own. The word wonderful here means extraordinary. Beyond normal capacity, the Son of God transcends all human wisdom. 
Yet, he promises in Psalm 32.8, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. See, Jesus doesn't just know you. He understands you. And for me, I don't even understand myself. And so that is good news, that he understands my darkness. He understands my fears. He understands me. And he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. See, the wonderful counselor, he knows you and he understands you. The Son of God is mighty God. Not only does he have perfect understanding, he also has the power to execute on those wise plans. The child is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, of the same essence as the Father and the Spirit, equal in power and might. He is omnipotent. Mighty God will give us strength in our time of need. The third, the Son of God is our everlasting Father. This is the most surprising one. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, but this is not a Trinitarian statement like mighty God is. Everlasting Father. He takes fatherly responsibility for us. And that is why the word everlasting is so important. This Father will never leave. You will never be an orphan again. You will always have a seat at his table. He is not going anywhere. He promises, Jesus says in Matthew 28, I am with you always. Why are we to be content, as Hebrews says? Because Jesus is with us always. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The everlasting Father has given you a seat at his table for all eternity. The Son of God is finally the Prince of Peace. He is the official, official representative of peace. Look at how this peace is given to us. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. See, it wouldn't be right for me to come to you, to take your cell phone, to take your car keys or your house keys, and then to turn around and give it to someone else. I don't own that. And you'd be like, I worked hard for that. You can't just give that away. Friends, this peace has been purchased by his blood. He is the only one that gives peace freely. He is the prince of peace, and he stands with the power to give us peace freely. And he says this, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Prince of Peace grants us his peace. And then our passage ends with this incredible reminder, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there are words again, there will be no end. See, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal 
of the Lord of hosts will do this. On the throne of David, where that despicable King Ahaz sits and reigns, perpetuating darkness, we are told there will be another king. The king of kings will reign on the throne of David. His magnitude will be so pervasive that it will only increase and there will be no end. You can count on the kingdom of peace because he promises that he will establish it. But he won't just establish it. He will uphold it by his power. But how can this all be done? Look at that final phrase. And I skip this every time. I, I, before I studied it to teach it, I was like, what? They're, they're, I didn't ever catch that. I'm familiar with this passage. But the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think I just didn't understand it. The zeal. The Lord's zeal is overwhelming. It's unstoppable. It's his jealousy. And just like the zeal brought about the birth and death of our Savior, it will bring about his return. The same zeal that brought about those redemptive acts is at work in us today, church. It's pushing back that darkness. The gloom of darkness is broken in a glorious light by the power of God through the Son of God. At Christmas, this is how we ought to think of Jesus. The child, the very Son of God given to us, sets us free from our oppressor. And he sits on the throne of our lives, defeating the king of self and saying, this is mine. When we need wise counsel, let us remember that he is our wonderful counselor. When we need strength, let us shelter in our mighty God. When we feel all alone, let us remember the warm embrace of our everlasting Father. When we are hit with the waves of anxiety, stress, fear, let us remember he is our Prince of Peace. Whenever we find ourselves in that gloom of despair, in thick darkness, let us look to the light of Christ. And he is able to do this and immeasurably more. So let us proclaim these excellencies to the, all the world. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Pray with me. Father, may our hearts and our minds be stirred of your grace and goodness to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. This Christmas week, may we look to him as our wonderful counsel. May we go nowhere else to seek wisdom and guidance but in you. May we see him as mighty God, full of strength and power. May we see him as our everlasting father, the warm embrace, taking responsibility for us, mediating on our behalf. And may we obtain the peace that is only found in Jesus, the Prince of Peace the one who freely gives, so that we are not afraid 